This is Jeff Steitzer, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Double kill, triple kill, overkill, killing spree, killing frenzy, Kilimanjaro, kill tacular, kill apocalypse, slayer, mmm, brains. <laughs> Welcome one, welcome all to episode 153 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, November 13th, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we are joined by the co-founder and creative lead for Lilymo Games, Colin Moriarty, to discuss art styles, the writing process, and how publishing on multiple platforms can glean insight into the differences between Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo. Gears of War is getting the film treatment, and Halo's winter update impresses quite a few fans. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, I extend words of kindness to Dano, Smitty Smith, and everyone who's taken a moment to check out and comment the YouTube shorts over on XEP's YouTube channel. That's been uh, kind of a new endeavor for me. I'm doing a couple of uh, elements of retooling slowly on the XEP side of things, taking it slow because I'm a solo show and I like to... Uh, take my time as I adjust things, you know, balancing work, professional and hobby, et cetera, et cetera. But I started YouTube shorts and I'm really enjoying them. I'm working on getting some overlays if I want to use those at all. Uh, but I'm really enjoying making YouTube shorts and I've seen comments. I've seen people checking them out. Uh, and it's a really good feel good win. Uh, if I'm being honest, it's really appreciated to see people doing that. Uh, so I really appreciate those of you that have taken a moment to take a look at them, uh, to offer feedback, to just comments. It's been it's been kind of cool. Uh, to just kind of be in that realm. I think I've made three at this point. Uh, one discussing uh, the Gears of War news. Uh, another discussing the arrival of God of War Ragnarok's Collector's Edition, which I was really excited about. Uh, and then the most recent one discussing Kevin Conroy and the Arkham games. And that was uh, kind of a heartfelt one. But it's been it's been fun. And then my dog often likes to, to jump in. When I work on content, uh, she's getting pretty old now. I actually carry her upstairs and let her kind of hang out in the room with me. So sometimes she makes appearances or you hear her fluff in the background. And uh, I thought about not doing that as far as the show is concerned, because I know it's like a quality thing, but it's kind of nice to have those little moments of memory and uh, inconvenience recorded, you know, kind of just those like memories there. She's 14 uh, and getting pretty gray. The eyes are getting white. And so. I kind of want to have these on record, just little little thoughts and moments of, oh, there's my fluffs doing what my fluffs does. Uh, and she's looking over at me now when I when I say that. Uh, so there you go. What are you going to do? All right, guys, uh, lots to talk about this week. Let's get into some news. One piece of content that I was really excited to read this week came out of Remedy Entertainment. They are officially working on Control 2, and they've signed an agreement with publisher 505 Games. Now, I'm, I'm stoked for this because I love Control. I love Alan Wake. I love a lot of what those games did. If you haven't played Control, I strongly recommend checking out the Ultimate Edition. It's usually on sale pretty regularly. With Black Friday coming up, you'll have a chance to check it out. 
but I really, really love what they did with those games. Recommend, by the way, playing them on Series X, S, or PlayStation 5. Uh, because it's very much a next gen game that was in that bridge kind of like i mean there's a lot of games that should have been now current gen only uh but you know a lot of reasons why they cross gen nonetheless control fantastic game i love it uh alan wake remastered really enjoyed that experience as well uh, and to see control 2 is coming out for just current gen titles series s x pc and ps5 i'm stoked for this one What's kind of a bummer is that the game is currently in a concept phase, meaning it's not going to be done for pretty much a long while. Uh, we do know that Remedy has their plate full because they are working on Alan Wake 2, which I'm oh, so excited for. Uh, and they're remaking Max Payne's 1 and 2. Uh, so that's kind of a wild thing to look at. I have reached out at various times to have people from Remedy on the show before uh, to, to, no, to no avail, unfortunately. Uh, but I feel like that would be one of those dream gets would be to sit down and uh, talk to to uh, the people that are making some of those games. They're just there's just so many cool moments of level design, of art, uh, of writing, which is is just incredible. Um, my mind is blanking on on the lead writer, who I, I want to say Sam Winter. He's like the face of Max Payne, and he he's worked on Alan Wake and everything. Um, but I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Nonetheless, it would be so cool to have them on. What's interesting to me is that Remedy shared that over 3 million copies of Control have been sold since launch. And that feels way too small a number for a game of the year contender, a game of the year winner in some cases, uh, a game that's cross-gen and really puts on display a lot of what the current gen systems has to offer. Uh, if you're among those few, or, or those many, I guess you would say, uh, who have not played Control, I strongly recommend checking it out. Uh, really, really good time. Really neat concepts and whatnot. It's weird. It's fun. You're kind of a Jedi uh, at various points. Definitely give Control a look uh, if you have not, because I, I really enjoy that one. And I think it, it's deserving of more players to be checking it out, particularly in a world where people love superhero games, uh, myself included. This is a great superhero game. It just hasn't happened to be branded DC or Marvel. So take that for what you will. Uh, Battleford, Battlefield, rather, 40, 2042. Uh, Battlefield 2042, uh, it's the first-person shooter, of course, uh, in the Battlefield franchise. And you can tell I'm reading a copy on that one. Um, it's, it's been announced that Season 3 of the game is going to be coming to EA Play, which, of course, means Game Pass subscribers will also get to play the game for free. So if you have not played Battlefield or even sitting on it because of all the broken launches, and they really have been working hard to fix that game. Uh, that's coming to Game Pass for Season 3, and I think that's a worthy entry into Game Pass. November 22nd, uh, Game Pass subscribers, check out Battlefield. Let me know if it's any good. I think it's a, a real shame that it's coming out right around the winter update for Halo, the Warzone 2 launch, the, <laughs> the Modern Warfare 2's arrival in general. There's a lot of love in the first-person shooter space. Uh, kind of a bummer that 2042 is, I think, going to get drowned out by that. I would have waited two weeks, uh, kind of the first week of December. But uh, maybe they know something I don't. Nonetheless, Battlefield 2042, a lot of fixes happening in there. Uh, if you're going to play it, uh, do check it out and let me know how it goes because I can't see myself tearing away from Modern Warfare 2, Warzone 2, uh, or the Halo Infinite Winter update, which I have not yet checked out but has gone live. I know my buddy Ains over at Season Gaming is loving it. Uh, I've seen a lot of really good press and really good like user vibes on this one it's like a 10 gig download but it introduces forge and a lot of people are really stoked about forge because it is basically the culmination of what the slipstream engine can do uh, we're seeing a lot of maps get remade a lot of content be produced here 
And if I had to guess, Forge is going to be what kicks this this game back on the map. I personally have no interest in designing a, a, anything in a video game. I don't enjoy level designing stuff. I, I had my brief stint with Disney Infinity making levels. That was really fun. But Forge is not for me how in terms of creation. But if people are creating things that others are enjoying playing and it's getting spotlights and you're seeing articles written about it, that brings about attention to a really great gameplay experience um, they also added campaign co-op to this one and i think that's amazing i can't wait for when uh joe uh kevin suddy myself charles whoever it is jump in and play campaign co-op i think that's going to be a really good time uh four player halo action in halo infinite's world i'm in for that one uh for sure like i really want to play halo infinite uh co-op but it's going to be when we're ready because i've already had that experience and i did it on the hardest difficulties etc um so that's kind of cool but there there, you know new maps in this update a free 30 tier battle pass that's good uh we'll see if, if this really is is going to get us ready for season three i hope people are excited about halo infinite again because the gameplay is sublime the problem is right now my attention's on modern warfare 2 and not going anywhere i'm really enjoying that experience i'm hot garbage at modern warfare 2 now i used to be like a plus 2 2.0 kda on any given map any given time in modern warfare 2 back in the day 10 15 years ago uh <laughs> now i'm like woo! i made 1.0 uh but i don't care i'm having a blast with it it's really really good uh, a lot of cool stuff in there. So that's that's what's up on that front. Uh, quick talk about Gears. Gears of War had its 16th anniversary this past week. Amazing. And celebrating that occasion where it was an announcement that uh, Netflix is partnering with the Coalition to adapt the games into live action films. Uh, or a live action film, which I, had to, I would have to guess becomes a series, right? Uh, they're also making an adult-themed animated series. So you have to think like Cyberpunk, Edge Runners, that kind of thing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Gears of War is ripe for the rated R treatment. Absolutely deserving of an animated series. I think people are really going to get into that. Uh, the live action one, a lot of people are, are sending out their dream casts on this. They're, uh, Dreamcast. They're sending out their dream casting uh, options on this one, who they want to see play, uh, what characters, whether or not Dave Bautista is going to be in the movie. Uh, I'm not sure Bautista is really the right choice for Marcus Phoenix. As much as I love him and his enthusiasm for the brand, I'm not sure he gets it. I don't know. I can't tell on that one. Uh, but I do know that there are two options for Baird that I think would be amazing. And one of them was suggested by the internet. The other one was from was me. Uh, a lot of people suggesting that The Rock should be Marcus and Baird should be played by Ryan Reynolds because they have such good chemistry. If like Red Notice, they have partnerships with Netflix uh, and The Rock brings in people. He'd be a good, you know, big muscly guy. And Ryan Reynolds is hilarious. So why wouldn't you? And I think that's a great choice. I love that option. I love the idea of Anthony Starr, the guy who played Homelander, to be Baird. I think that would be a really good foil to whoever they pick to be like the the big, tough, brooding guy. And I think a lot of times these ensemble casts that require like quiet archetype heroes, they need the right people around them. And I think Anthony Starr would deliver that one. So that's my choice for for playing Baird. I don't have a strong thought on any of the other cast members right now or any of that stuff. I'm really just curious to see what Netflix is going to do. Are we going to get a Resident Evil situation? Are we going to get a Cyberpunk Edge Runner situation? Where are you landing in this one? And um, I saw people debating like the proper director for this one. And somebody said Zack Snyder, which is right up my alley, right? Like I'm a diehard Snyder fan. Um, I would 
actually say that's a perfect fit because of how dark and brooding things are in the two universes. It actually makes perfect sense, joking aside. So like maybe, eh, who knows? you never know, never know. Uh, but uh, I'm excited to see Gears getting some love. I love Gears of War myself. I once had an incredible Gears of War collection that I had to sell off to make ends meet at one point. Uh, and since rebuilding kind of various gaming collector pieces, I've not rebuilt my Gears collection. I just, I, I haven't been able to do it. And so uh, I still have the books and the comic books over on my shelf. I'm still looking at um, the Gears retrospective, which is, uh, pretty darn cool. Like I, I have a dream interview uh, with Cliff Blazinski. Like I really, I, I have it. I have a dream to interview Cliff Blazinski, uh, which is, you know, I have his new book control freak over on the shelf, which I'm anxious to read this holiday. Um, Gears is special, man. Gears is special. And so cheers to that. I did want to comment on something uh, that I saw, or I've been seeing a lot of people discuss over on the old interwebs there in the social media spaces as Twitter burns to the ground. Uh, and that's God of War and Xbox players enjoying God of War. And I got to tell you, um, God of War Ragnarok, fantastic game so far. I'm, I'm a couple hours in, really enjoying it on my PS5. I got the, the collector's edition with Mjolnir's Hammer. I'm absolutely loving this game. And it, it's very apparent from the moment you boot the game up that Xbox does not have a single title on the level of God of War in terms of, of what they're going for with presentation, third-person narrative, storytelling, writing. There's nothing in Xbox's pantheon that compares. That's not to say that Xbox or PlayStation makes better games than the other. It's a matter of, I think, direction and audience. Now, you look at the top games for Xbox right now, Sea of Thieves, Forza Horizon, Halo Infinite. These are the top games on the Xbox side, Microsoft Flight Simulator, and none of them are going for that third-person story-based narrative. Now, it's a matter of what your preference is. In truth, I love Halo Infinite, love Sea of Thieves. I've got, you know, days and days of, of time in these games. Sea of Thieves, I think I'm at a thousand hours now. Um, Halo Infinite, several hundred or a couple hundred, I think. Maybe that's too much. Maybe that's too much, but a lot, right? Um, and I love the Halo series, the Halo as a, as a franchise, thousands upon thousands of hours. Uh, I really love those, but none of them do what God of War does because they're not trying to do what god of war does and it makes me really frustrated because i boot up my ps5 for the first time in a while i start god of war and the first thing i think to myself is man i wish xbox would do this man i wish xbox had this and i look at what's on the horizon for microsoft and i don't see any games like this i see redfall i see starfield uh, i see avowed perhaps perfect dark perhaps State of Decay 3, but none of them are trying to do what Ragnarok does, what Insomniac Spider-Man does, what Ghost of Tsushima does, and it kind of bums me out. I want that third-person, single-player, narrative-driven experience that oozes quality from the moment you boot it up. I get that with a lot of Sony first-party things. I don't get that from Microsoft's first-party things. Again, a matter of direction. This is apples and oranges comparisons, but it does make me think about, oh, Imagine if we got this experience with a Microsoft IP. And I, and I really do dig that concept and that idea. I mean, there are moments of writing in Halo Infinite that really stand out. There are moments of, of beauty in Sea of Thieves that are just awe-inspiring with those sunsets in the water. And there are, there are really cool, hellacious experiences with Forza Horizon. But I don't think they, they are meant to be compared to something like God of War, Ghost of Tsushima, etc., but I would like to see Xbox explore this realm a bit more. Hellblade, 
two has the potential to be this, and I hope it is. I think some people wanted the Rise franchise to do that. I would love to see a uh, not a crackdown in that realm. I would I would just love to see maybe a single player Gears of War experience that's based in this, where you're not Marcus Phoenix, but you are a guy uh, or girl kind of in that Gears world. Threats of the Locust coming up after you as your solo endeavor trying to get through everything. That'd be a really cool experience. You got climbing elements. I I saw glimpses of it in High Busters. Uh, if they took away the 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 bro the brosive shooting ele- not shooting the brosive I guess you would say team co op moments of Gears and you had a single player experience, I think you could do a lot with that. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's pretty cool. I've also I'll note that that God of War Ragnarok feels like more God of War at this early stage. I'm playing it. It doesn't feel like it's doing anything new yet. And Still okay with that. Still loving that. I mean, if if I got more of my favorite games and I'm getting more of my favorite, one of my favorite games with God of War, that's great. Um, I just haven't felt like there's anything that's doing a big thing. So a lot of people are asking about like game of the year. I don't know yet. Not there. Um, loving Vampire Survivors. That's an incredible game. Jump, check it out on, on Game Pass, by the way. Uh, it's on console as well. Uh, the the game of the year conversation that's going to come down to Elden Ring and God of War, I think is going to be, at least based on, on right now, uh, probably gonna be like do you want a gameplay experience do you want an narrative experience and they're both fantastic and so uh, cheers to that i uh, i don't really get into the game of the year conversation as much as i used to i think last year i really bowed out of it and i really just don't care anymore i'm really more like hey i love playing great games i don't care what your game of the year is i i don't like when it one means the other isn't as good and i don't that's not that's, I guess that's just not where i'm at uh at, in life right now but i know elden ring gave me some of the best gaming experiences this year God of War is looking like it's going to be giving me some some of the best gaming experiences. I'm loving Vampire Survivors. Uh, I just 1K'd Gotham Knights, which is a blast. Um, certainly a flawed game in many ways, but I'm really enjoying that. It's it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. All right, let's get to a few elements of listener mail. Uh, I'm rocking and rolling today, really just trying to uh, enjoy talking to you guys. Rocking and rolling here. And then, then we're going to talk to Colin Moriarty, which I know is going to be an interesting one for many of you. All right. First question this week comes from Anubis. He says, what is your hype level for Somerville? Uh, Anubis, right now it's at zero. Uh, Really and truly haven't thought about Somerville not once. Uh, At the moment, I'm looking forward to Evil West. Uh, Like I said, I'm I'm playing my way through God of War. I'm playing my way through Vampire Survivors. I just finished Arkham Knight, or Gotham Knights, rather. Uh, I'm really anxious and keen to check out Sonic Frontiers when it goes on sale. Uh, I think that game, you know, with a few patches probably is going to be really great. Really looking forward to that one. Uh, and my mind is on Callisto Protocol as well for this year. So Evil West is kind of my big one. And then Callisto Protocol, Sonic Frontiers. And I haven't really thought about many other games uh, at the moment. I'm kind of short-term focused and Somerville never really spoke to me. So at the moment, zero. But um, I mean, are you stoked for it? Let me know about that one. And, and more curiously, should I reach out to the Somerville people? Like, are they somebody you'd like to have on the show? Because if so, I, I will take the time and reach out to them. Absolutely. All right, next question, a bit of a somber one, comes from Famous Seamus. He says, in honor of Ken- Kevin Conroy, what were your favorite, favorite, who, see, I got emotional. <clears throat> Kevin Conroy just passed away this past week, if anybody did not know, and he voiced Batman in the animated series, as well as a number of games and animated films. He also made a live action appearance, I think, in one of the, the CW shows, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Batwoman, but um, I think it was like a big crossover thing. Nonetheless, he says, and this is Famous Seamus, he says, in honor of Kevin Conroy, what were your favorite moments from the Batman Arkham series? 
Oh man, um, my favorite moments from the Batman Arkham series. Well, Arkham's the Arkham series, um, Origins, Asylum, City, and Night. That's my favorite game series of all time, and Arkham Knight is my favorite game of all time. And I've uh, really been enjoying kind of retrospective thoughts on that series of late. I think Batman's a character that's defined by uh, his villains, and so from the very first moment in Arkham Asylum, when when Batman is taking Joker in. Uh, seemingly voluntarily on Joker's part, there's a special moment uh, of interaction between, you know, Conroy's Batman and Mark Hamill's Joker that really lets you know you're in for a new gaming experience. Arkham Asylum is what brought superhero games into perhaps the mainstream isn't the right word, but really that top tier level of gameplay that it got them or Arkham Asylum is what allowed us to get to Spider-Man. Right. So it's pretty darn cool to have those moments. And I think about when, when, he brought Joker in. I think about the killer croc fight uh, from the first movie or from the first game, rather when uh, in, in Arkham city, when you're exposed to the city for the first time and you suddenly you realize just how many Easter eggs are littered throughout, how many different areas there are, the dynamic conversations that are taking place about the Batman uh, and, and him hunting everyone. I remember playing Arkham City for the first time using DLC costumes, playing as Batman Beyond was really cool. Um, and, and then all the different like scarecrow missions where you're in the fear world, where you're exposed to, to toxin gas. Um, it, it was just wild. I really love the boss fights from the Arkham Origin series. And I Arkham Knight, man, there's so many great moments in Arkham Knight that occur dynamically because of the world and the way they choose to tell the story. There are so many villains in Arkham Knight that you can experience Batman's interactions with. Uh, And the way they incorporate the Joker into Arkham Knight is really special as well because he's dead. So when I think about all the great Arkham series moments and I think about coming Conroy's experiences with them, it's interesting because I think of all the villains and all the, the performances of the villains, but never once do I think about Conroy's portrayal of Batman because it's such a staple, badass, capable hero and voice to match it that it's never interrupting my moments. I'm never thinking, oh, that didn't sound right. That doesn't match. I'm like, no, this is Batman. Kevin Conroy's voice is Batman uh, in these games and in the, this universe. And it's just, it's incredible when you when you handle the Joker, when you face down Scarecrow, when you battle Ra's al Ghul. All the performances that Conroy gives just nail it. You're always Batman, and it's really, really neat uh, to have it. So, yeah, I, I think about just what Kevin Conroy did for Bat fans and people like me who, I mean, I'm sitting in the Secret Labs Batman chair. I'm looking over at my shelf, and I've got every statue now. My collection has grown, by the way. This is really cool. Uh, I've got Arkham Knight, Asylum, and City statues from the collector's editions. I finally got those. I just need to get Origins. Um Kevin Conroy's Batman brought that character to life and it's really cool. It's really, really neat. And uh, I'm, I'm sad that he's gone, but happy to have so many great memories with him uh, in different, in different universes and whatnot. So yeah, that's, I guess my, my thoughts uh, more expanded on, on Kevin Conroy. All right. Last question comes from Mr. Hypecaster. He says, uh, doing a standard Antonio Guillen thing, he says, an old lady heads into a local electronics boutique. She's trying to reconnect with her teenage grandchild who likes anime, video games, and recreational marijuana. She's asked you, the store employee, uh, on a five-minute lunch break, which game box do I buy for Timmy? What do you say? Uh, if grandma's in there and Timmy doesn't have a game gaming box just yet, I say get a Series S. 
get Timmy the Series S, get him Game Pass, and, and let him check out some stuff there. He's going to get to play a ton of hit titles in Xbox's Pantheon. He's going to get a, a chance to play a lot of top-tier AAA titles, uh, some of which I've mentioned on this episode. And he's got access to the entire EA Play lineup. So whether it's racing games of Xbox, racing games of EA, whether it's uh, action games across uh, Xbox and EA, he's going to have them all. And if he really digs it, uh, he can also play those things with his subscription over on the cloud or his PC. So that's what you get him for the variety. Absolutely. Um, if he likes the Fortnites, uh, if he likes the Calls of Duty, they are all there and going nowhere. So that's what I would say. Get the Gaming Box Xbox Series S. That's what you get for Little Timmy. Uh, if, if Little Timmy was not little and he was in his twenty mid-20s, I'd say buy your own Gaming Box. Uh, stop making your grandma smoke weed to be cool with you. All right. That's going to be it from my side of the show. Uh, before I head you over to listen to Colin Moriarty's interview, uh, I think it's really neat that Colin was willing to come on. I think uh, a lot of people know Colin Moriarty from uh, his IGN days, beyond, uh, from Kind of Funny, and more specifically, leaving Kind of Funny and the split there in order to create Last Stand Media. A controversial figure, sure. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about him. Uh, but I would remind you that Colin was willing to come on the show and discuss his role at Lilymo Games. That's what we talked about. We didn't talk about a lot of uh, the other stuff because I think there are other people that are interested in that. And this show is about discussing uh, development with developers. And so Colin talked about being a creative lead, talked about being a writer, being a co-owner of a company and what they do specifically to make Lilymo titles. Uh, And that to me was, was my favorite part about this. I learned a lot about how being denied from getting into Game Pass can give you insight into how games are published on the different platforms. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Lilymo Games, think Twin Breaker, Perils of Baking, uh, is 1 and 2, which is what I love. I love is 1 and 2. Uh, 1K'd both of them. You should absolutely check those games out. Um, yeah, uh, enjoy the interview for that. Really, really listen. And, and uh, if you're a fan of, of Last Stand Media and you're listening to this one, I have to say I really enjoyed my time listening to Colin. Uh, I've enjoyed his interactions with with Ainsley Bowden over on Season Gaming. Uh, I would hope to see him on something like uh, The Trophy Room, a PlayStation podcast. It'd be really cool. So um, I, I really enjoyed this interview. It was, it was insightful for a lot of reasons. And, and Colin tr- spoke to me with a ton of respect and, and kindness uh, and was willing to come on and talk about his, his roles. And I think that was a great thing. So I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Get back at me on Twitter at InsipidGhost if there is somebody that you would like to have on the show from the development side of things. Uh, please check out the YouTube shorts over on the YouTube side of things. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, it's available on all the other podcast services as well. That's it for me. Enjoy the interview. Take care. Well, today we are fortunate now to welcome writer, co-owner, and creative lead for Lily Mo Games, Mr. Colin Moriarty. Colin, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm ecstatic to have you. I think a lot of people probably know you, uh, if they're my age, from the IGN days, perhaps from Kind of Funny or Last Stand Media. But today, we're talking about Lilymo, which you uh, co-own and you're the creative lead for. Tell me about where that came from. Yeah, so Lilymo was founded by my partner and majority owner, uh, Barry Johnson. And uh, that was his first game came out, let's see, in 2000. 19 i want to say was it 2019 18 19 it might have been 2018 actually the original perils of baking Mm -hmm. and uh, he had happened to just be a listener of mine 
and might still be probably not because we know each other now. So it's probably awkward to just be listening to these <laughs> random podcasts where I go on and on and on. But um, when I was when I left kind of funny and started uh, Sacred Symbols and Last Stand, the uh, the opportunity had presented itself to collaborate with him on a game potentially having to do with the show Sacred Symbols. And we mm-hmm. released that game Twin Breaker. But that's basically how I came to be subsumed by this company because basically we worked together and, and I ended up acquiring 49% of the company after Twin Breaker came out. So, um, so yeah, that's how it all, it, it kind of just, it, it sounds lame, but it kind of fell in my lap and I, I wanted to take advantage of it because I think Barry's great. And I think I, I love arcade games and 2d games and we have a real spirit for that. That's all we want to make. So I think I have like a, a bedfellow with him and yeah, we're making it work. So it's been fun. That's that's really fascinating and interesting. I'm curious though how Twin Breaker comes about prior to you working with Lilymo. Like like what was it that pushed you towards making Twin Breaker or or crafting that narrative? Yeah, so when Perils, the original Perils came out, which I had nothing to do with. This is a we we like the game, but it's a very crude game that Barry made. It's on PS4 and a couple of other platforms and mm-hmm. he sent it to me and I gave him feedback on it and then Habroxia, I want to say, came out. I think that's the order. And when Habroxia came out the next year, he sent that to me. And I could tell that there was a major jump in quality and his abilities and all of the rest. And it was really interesting. And so I was giving him more feedback. I think we talked about Habroxia on Sacred Symbols, which was cool. And then he had base Barry basically came up to me and, and asked if, you know, maybe I would write something or we can collaborate when we were talking and going back and forth on that. And so we had this original idea, which the demo still exists for. We've talked to our audience about it. We were we were working on we wanted to make a brawler Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like a double dragon style game. And we were going to call it Please Protect Chris um, and base it on our co-host, Chris Raygun on Sacred Symbols and basically like how like just a a day in his life trying to get to the show recording and all the things he has to do. And it would just be like this ridiculous concept. And we were kind of going down that road and then for a little while and then. Barry had presented to me knowing that I am I have a real affinity for brick breakers, which I do. I love brick breakers. And he presented me with this idea he had and a demo of twin break, what would become twin breaker with, you know, multiple paddles and all the rest. And so I'm like, let's do this and we can make this into our game and put me and Chris in that in that case into the pilot seats of these two ships. And I can write this story and it would be this really, you know, so twin breaker ended up being this really funny game in the sense that we wanted to make it as dramatic and ridiculous as possible. I gave it this insane story. And uh, and then it's just a brick breaker. So but it has like all this really intense narrative and dialogue and all the rest. So that's how that game came about. And then it was just really supposed to be a one off thing. And then we ended up kind of merging together into a hive mind, Barry and I. And so that we've, we've gone forward together for two plus years in that regard. So when he comes to you with the idea of Twin Breaker or showing you that, then you're thinking you can do more with it. Habroxia had already been out. Am I got, do I have my timeline right? Yeah, it goes Perils and then Habroxia 1 and then mm-hmm. Twin Breaker, then Habroxia 2 and then got Super it. Perils of Baking. So um, yeah, so Habroxia was already out and I had nothing to do with the original Habroxia. I see. Um, okay. With with Habroxia 2, we're work, my task was to kind of start to retcon the original Habroxia into something more... Um, into something understandable. So what we ended up doing with that was um, the pilot in the first game is is lost and her, his daughter is looking for him in the second one, Sabrina, mm-hmm. which is this character we made. And so, yeah, that's so we, we want to continue to do more with Habroxia. We're working mm-hmm. on a couple of Habroxia projects. We think we might want to maybe remake the original Habroxia, which we already did with Perils of Baking. But 
we have we're very schizophrenic with the things we try to do so we really need to figure out our next path there are there are multiple options for us well, uh, for listeners, my introduction to Lilymo games specifically came by way of Habroxia's both one and two. I, I found this shmup, uh, checked it out, and then I was like, oh, I love this gameplay. And then Habroxia 2 uh, and really enjoyed my time with it. And I could tell that there was uh, a significant, you know, I mean, it's very obvious, of course, there's a significant amount of writing in Habroxia 2 that kind of paves the way to tell a more complete story. And so you've got more in the works for that. That is it a franchise? Would you think of it as a franchise at this point? Yeah, I think we could. I mean, we're tiny, so it's mm-hmm. it's funny to say, yeah, it's an IP, I suppose. Yeah, it was funny because when I wrote Twin Breaker, I wrote it. It was there's a ton of writing in that game. But the idea was it was supposed to be ridiculous how much writing was in it. It was supposed mm-hmm. to kind of be ironic mm-hmm. in the sense like I like the story. I think it's fun. It's this futuristic story about war and space travel and all the rest. But I put a ton of narrative in it because I wanted it to be really unbalanced in the sense that you don't really, you know, I love Arkanoid, you know, uh, Breakout, mm-hmm. Magic Orbs, like all these games in the past. They didn't try to tell you anything. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it would be funny to, to do that. And then so when we put Herboxia 2 out, I'm like, all right, I'm going to pair the story back significantly and we'll tell the story through an intro and an ending, a secret ending. And then I actually tried to tell the story through the descriptions of the different planets that you would go to or the different places in the system mm-hmm. that you go to. But when we released the game, one of the major complaints about it, and I felt bad about this, was like, where's the writing? Like, where's the story? And I'm like, I'm I'm trying to make it more in the spirit of what the game was supposed to be at the time. And so we kind of it's ironic, I guess, in that I put myself in a corner where people wanted more story. So we actually patched it and I put a bunch more story in the Hubroxia 2 based on user requests. So that's where like Sabrina's journal comes from and all the rest. And so that- um, yeah. That means what I played was not actually the released version and, and the story was added to it post-launch? The intro was there. Every, so the intro sequence was there. All the interstitials were there and like the planet, like the, the names of the creatures or the robots that you fight, the names of the mm-hmm. planets with the descriptions, that was all there. But the the main uh, journal entries that you get after each stage that add like a shit ton of story, pardon my, pardon my language, to the... Um, to the uh, game was written and patched in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. All right. So this brings up this idea of, of scope, I suppose, because Lilymo seems to do a lot of, I, I, I would call it retro aesthetic, right? There's things that obviously totally. the old systems couldn't that's do. That's all we want to do, by the way. So. Oh, okay. Let's, let's yeah. talk, let's touch on that then. Yeah. Why? How come? Like, what's the reason for that? I just think that 2d games are special and I understand why we're getting more and more away from them. And I also understand that there are really big, very talented developers that do make 2D games, such as mm-hmm. you know Yacht Club and Way Forward. We're not on those guys' levels at all. But when I look at a lot of games with the spirit of 2D, what you notice, and I'll bring up like Bloodstain, Ritual of the Night, or mm-hmm. Mega Man 11. Mm-hmm. They're 2.5D. They're ugly. And I hate to say that, but it's just 2.5D is a cop-out. And we don't want to make we don't want to take the spirit of it and then just give you this this unity aesthetic or this like unreal 3.x aesthetic where it's it looks like shadow complex or something now i love shadow complex but look at the game and then look at symphony of the night right look at castlevania 3 then look at ocarina of time (laughs) you know and fundamentally different right one still holds up aesthetically I still think Castlevania two and three are some of the scariest games ever made. Um, atmospheric games and they're NES games. 
And so we want to be able to contribute to that as much as we can. So Barry and I are in total lockstep. Like we have no interest in, you will never see, I, oh, I don't want to say never. I don't even know where we would begin making a 3D game. We have no idea how to make them. We don't use the, an engine that can make them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just have a real passion for pixel art. And I just think pixel art is the most beautiful thing. And you see a game like Shovel Knight or you see the ritual, or I'm sorry, the uh, Bloodstained spinoff games that are predicated on Castlevania 3. They're gorgeous. They're mm-hmm. absolutely stunning. Or you look at that Mina or Mir the Wanderer game that's coming out from Yacht Club next year. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, that's that's where we want to be. So more power to 2.5D if that's what you like. More power to 3D if that's what you want to do. I love 3D games. It's just that 2.5D is trying to have your cake and eat it too. And I just won't have it because it's it's pretty ugly most of the time. It's such a shame that Ega didn't just take the extra time and spend the extra money with a studio like any creates that already makes 2D sprite based games like Mega Man 9 and 10 and made Ritual of the Night like Symphony of the Night in in pure pixel art. The reason they don't do it is because it's hard and it's expensive, but we want to be able to contribute to that in some meaningful way. So hopefully we can continue to do that. Do you think that pixel art allows the player if they're interested or inclined to imagine uh, that world better? Is that perhaps why you find some of those NES games to be as scary as they are versus some of the games that are can be far more graphic in, in these modern times with blood and gore uh, and atmosphere? Do you think that's why people are able to do it? Is their imagination? I think so. I think that's what one of the things that makes video games special. Like I loved Resident Evil 8. I thought it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, but when you play a game like that, it doesn't leave anything to the imagination. And that's totally fine. I think that's totally fine. Everything you see is the world you're in. It's all beautifully rendered. It's atmospheric and ambient. There's voice acting and there's sound effects and walking through the snow and opening doors. And it's just it's all there. And that's awesome. It's an experiential thing. But I do think that part of what games can leverage is not the reality, but the assumed reality of a situation that you're seeing it through a perspective. Like when I play a Japanese role playing game, and I go to a town and I can talk to 17 different people and go into six different buildings. I know that there are not only six different buildings and 17 people in the town that can't be. There are like those old videos and, and people would write these articles about like how many people are actually in Final Fantasy six. And then you would go around and count. And it's like the world's population is 212 or something. It's like it's supposed to be an avatar for reality. And if we understand that through that lens, then we can and in a Japanese role playing game, for instance, when you're on the world map, you're not really on a world map. You're traveling to and fro and encountering enemies and experiencing things. And we get that using your imagination. So I think you're right on. I think there's a place for both things. But I just think it's lame that we don't explore the former more since that's where games came from by very the very nature of what they are and the way they were created back in the day. All right. So, Colin, I'm, you mentioned a moment ago that pixel art is more expensive than certain elements of 3D rendering. And I I'm fascinated by this idea. Uh, did you know that going into like your role with Lilymo, or uh, was that something you discovered? Because I feel like I'm discovering it right now. Yeah, I knew that for a while. Um, it wasn't always obvious and it's and it wasn't always true. Um, so when you look at the, the transition from 2d to 3d in the early to mid nineties, so when you see the, the jump from to N64 and Saturn and all of those games, all those consoles, those games were su- substantially more expensive. A game like final fantasy seven, um, which was released in 97 and entered development in 94, 95 cost $50 million. 
at the time with its marketing budget. And that was considered outrageous. And there was probably 100 people or so working on the game, which was a huge team. Final Fantasy IV, you know, created in 1989, 1990, it was created in something like 16 months with 10 people or something. So mm-hmm. everything changed. Um, but then it changed back because what ended up happening was it's not that it's like a lost art, but making people, first of all, people started learning 3d modeling. My, my brother experiences this. my older brother, Dagan is an animator and he's a traditional animator, which is like a dying art. Mm-hmm. And uh, he works at Nickelodeon now and he'll always lament that he should just, he feels like he should, and he's almost 50 now, but he, he laments that he should just disappear for a year, learn Maya and all these other things that would be necessary for him to learn. And then come back as a 3D animator because so many people are doing it now. But the reality is, is that making 3D worlds, rendering in 3D is very difficult, but it's, it can be assisted by many different things which don't exist per se in the world of pixel art. So you can have middleware and a bunch of tool sets that help you animate fluidly and do all these things in your engine. You create you know, one model and you can move it around and create frames and so I'm no animator, I'm no artist, and I'm not saying it's easy because you look at a game like The Last of Us Part Two or Horizon Forbidden West or something like that, and you're like, Jesus Christ, this is absolutely insane. And it is, it's really expensive. These are $200 million games that are developed for five years at a time. And so what I'm saying is, is that it's not that there's no skill or a lack of skill in that space. Of course not. It's just that everyone's focus is in that space. Everyone's time is spent in that space. All the tools are made to make that space easier and more hospitable for people to be in. Mm -hmm. And the more that that happens, the more pixel art becomes a lost art because it's hard to convince someone to say, like, I look at a game like Symphony of the Night as being, you know, came out in 1997 on PS1 as being a seminal pixel art game. Look at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at it. It's insane. But the reality is, is that all of those enemies had to be animated by hand right Mm -hmm. like frame by frame all the flicker of the light is actually pixels over other pixels all you know what i mean Mm -hmm. the alucard's amazing slide back is a series of hand-drawn animations and you know using pixel art and putting that all together and it's not to say that that's not tool assisted or aided either although it really wasn't at that time but it's just to say that it's a it's a more difficult and arduous process so when you see when i see a game like shovel knight And then I see a game like Horizon Forbidden West. I'm like, these are two games that look amazing and are at the very top of their respective fields or their, I shouldn't say fields, their respective mediums, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I just have more of an interest in creating the the latter because I just feel like it's a, it's a connection to where games came from when I started playing games and ultimately what I look for most in games. If you, if you honest to God came to me and said like, you can't, you can either play in 2d or you can play in 3d and there's really no going back. I would choose 2d. Interesting. Yeah. I see. Well, can you talk to me a bit about, uh, or rather I'd like to talk about kind of this concept of scope in game creation. I think we've heard a lot about it, uh, of late, uh, as studios are bought and sold games are canceled and rekindled. Uh, but to enter into game creation, what does the word scope mean to you as far as coming to a project? Yeah, I think the scope of the project is, and by the way, the scope of every project is always huge at the beginning, mm-hmm. but the scope of a project is like where, what it aims to do and what it intends to do, not just in terms of length and staying power, but um, in terms of demand on the player, what is, you know, is, is the scope um, a single player campaign of 14 levels plus a multiplayer suite? Is it um, just a multiplayer map with 
battle royale mechanics? Is it, you know, so that's kind of how I understand it and how mm-hmm. we've always used it. And the reality is, and you always hear this, I always think of Uncharted specifically where Uncharted 2, and this happens all the time, Uncharted 2 is really what is really the the um the realization of what they had kind of intended to do in the scope of the first one. They just had to start cutting and pairing because there's not enough time and, and things go by the wayside and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Um we're kind of dealing though with this this notion at RN2. Like I, I like this term weekend game that I came up with. Mm-hmm. This idea of we're not going to compete with people, generally speaking, that are putting, uh, you know, like God of War is coming out now, Tactics Ogre, all these games I'm really looking forward to. And we're not going to compete with those games. Those games require a shit ton of time and uh, more money and a lot of time as currency from the player. And so how can we fit in? And I always said, like, let's play. Let's make games that people can download on a Friday and finish on a Sunday mm-hmm. and feel good about having spent 10 bucks on it and we we're not demand we can release anytime because we're not demanding too much of them and we're not trying to compete by putting up you know by scoping 25 hour campaigns and doing all these things so we with the role-playing game we're making we're going to go much bigger for the first time but generally speaking i think that we want to make and in fact one of the harboxia projects we're thinking of which would be a prequel to harboxia would be even smaller um and maybe even more bite size and, and we'll explore how that goes as well because there, there's a lot of different things we want to explore as far as like we can get the best data for ourselves by trying these games and selling them and just seeing what happens so uh, for listeners i want to just give you guys an idea of what he means in weekend game as well i put about 12 and a half hours into Habroxia 2 with over 1200 achievement points and that's been an absolute blast i've enjoyed every moment of it done new game plus new game plus plus um, awesome. i still can't i still can't be boss rush mode even on the basic level yeah, it's, but, it's tough, man. I mean, we we often find that the games are harder than we think. That's, okay, so that's interesting. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna ask you about that in a moment, but I wanted okay. listeners to get an idea of what you mean in that weekend game is truly like it's quick and digestible. Um, I'm curious though, and I'm thinking with this question, the jump between Habroxia one to Habroxia two, uh, and how the lessons of the first game uh, impact the scope of the second game. You've talked about the writing, but what about like? the amount of enemies, the level design, any of that kind of stuff. I mean, reusing assets and enemies is something that you guys did mm-hmm. uh, in, in ways with Hybroxia's one to two. And sometimes that gets, how, what's the polite way to say it, mixed up in the conversation. These very silly people saying like, God of War is using, reusing animations and whatnot. Right. Like, shut up, you know, like, that seems so silly to me. But what's the right way to take lessons from one game to the next while while maintaining your scope on where you're going well i think what's funny about reusing assets is you know my, my favorite series of all time is the classic Mega Man games mm-hmm. and yeah. those yeah. games all reuse assets from one to the next and, and each game introduces assets and and retires assets of course with enemies and obviously the bosses are a big part of it but what's cool about that is it actually it's it could be looked at as lazy and probably is one of those things where you can be like well we can take a third of our enemy slate we've already programmed and made the art for them we can literally just drop them mm-hmm. into these new into the new game package and it'll work exactly the way we want to so there's something obviously shortcutish about that and that's smart but there's also something that binds it all together it's like why would dr wiley have make all new enemies or mm-hmm. new robots over and over again wouldn't he have robots that he would always rely upon and so yes it's like yes they, he would he would have the Matul hard hats and all these different things and so when we were looking at Herboxia 2, we thought the same thing. We're like, well, we're dealing with the same 
enemies. So why would they? And we're going to their home system now mm-hmm. in Herboxia too. So why would you? Why would they have just different stuff there? They have some different stuff, probably mm-hmm. newer stuff, better stuff, maybe stuff that would solidify and protect their home system better. But of course, they're going to have a lot of things that they fought in the first game with as well. And so that just made a lot of a lot of sense to us. Um, I think what's funny about the God of War stuff, and this was a thing with Horizon 2, was the reuse of animations. I remember people were upset. Aloy was like using the same rope animations and all this. And in my mind, I was just thinking, wouldn't she? Wouldn't she do it the same way? I mean, yeah. if, if Kratos has this way that he and, and the boy put the boat in and out of the water, wouldn't they just do it that way over and over again? Yes, they are reusing old animations. But this is very old, too. You can find plenty of videos. And this was done in the traditional days of Disney movies just overlaid over each other, overlaid, 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 stealing animations from one Disney movie to the next to the next. Have you seen these videos? I have. Yeah. Um, Mickey Mouse and walking is, is suddenly a different character walking. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it's because they look at it and they're like, well, the kinetic energy in that animation is done and it works. We can just draw over it, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's that's a shortcut. But it also makes sense because. It's what we often say about Call of Duty on our show Sacred Symbols, which is the shooting, in my opinion, is so good in that that I feel like there's no shame in replicating it and keeping it. Mm-hmm. And so if you find in your in Horizon that this is the perfect looking tree, it's like, well, I don't need you to necessarily model another tree if that's the perfect looking tree. You know, you know, you understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It's just I feel like people need to look at it more as a world building thing, too, even though it is used as a shortcut, of course. But you should want your developers to make short to take shortcuts so they can spend their time on new things. And uh, yeah. So anyway, I'm going on. No, you're not. That's hey, that's why you're here. <laughs> that's the whole point of having this interview, man. Uh, do you think that uh, in in the idea of taking uh, assets and lessons from games one to two players want to keep that sense of continuity into your next Habroxia projects, which I'm thrilled to find out are coming? Um. Yeah, I would assume that if you care about Hibroxy, then you would want some sort of connective tissue and things can change. So we're talking about Mega Man, for instance, in Mega Man 2, they introduce the items, which in Mega Man 3 becomes Rush and all the different Rush mechanics. And they also Mm -hmm. introduce the slide. And then in Mega Man 4, they keep the slide, they keep Rush and they add the the power shot, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think like that kind of approach would make a lot of sense for us. And we, we're thinking about going in two different ways with Habroxia. We have an idea for, a, like I said, a Habroxia prequel, which I think would be a smaller game. And I have a really a, a central idea of what I want, what, what I think that can be. Mm-hmm. And Barry is already working on scoping, you know, specking that out for us. And then a Habroxia three would go in the opposite direction, which I think would be an even grander version of Habroxia two. And it's a scaled project between the sequential order. Right. So think about Mega Man. Mega Man 1 had six robot and bosses and then like three stages before you fought Wily. And then Mega Man 2 had eight robot masters and it was like four Wily stages. And then Mega Man 3 had eight robot masters and then you go back to four of those stages and then you go to Wily's castle. Mm-hmm. And then Mega Man 4 had eight robot masters and Dr. Cossack's castle and then Dr. Wily's castle. You know what I mean? You just mm-hmm. you continue to build on that. It reminds me a little bit of Mario 3 to Super Mario World as well, mm-hmm. where they're really the same. But one is just much bigger than the other. They're both great, though. And so, yeah, I think that that would make a lot of sense for us with Herboxia, you know, a Herboxia 3 or a Herboxia prequel. Um, and we're interested in staying in that space just because we that's our that's a po- it's popular. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a compared to Super Perils of Baking. It's just it seems like a direction worth going into for us. 
You mentioned difficulty earlier, and I wonder if you couldn't expand upon that because I am, uh, especially as I get older, less and less good at games. That's a terrible yeah, me too. That, but you know, I struggle more and more with with the quick reactions and whatnot, and patience, I suppose, as well. Um, as you guys develop a game and you're kind of crafting both a narrative and a gameplay experience, difficulty for your player base has to become a factor for development. How do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, the reality is is that we have opened up the game the game to be played you know the next game and the next game and the next game and so on to be played by many more people than we used to and i think that that's been really important because i think we found with twin breaker especially that it was just way harder than we thought Mm -hmm. and i think that that came from the fact that really only we played it i mean a couple other people tried it but Barry and I were the ones who played Twin Breaker. And so when you play it over and over and over and over and over again, you just become really good at it. And then when we released it, in my opinion, I was like, this game's kind of easy, but I hope people see it for what it is. And then we're getting feedback. Like, Jesus Christ. The, you said uh, that about Mega Man back in the day. And I, even with the, the collections, I'm still getting crushed. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's you just got to be in that mode. Yeah, I think I'm just very much a 2D gamer. Like I remember when Shovel Knight came out and people were really struggling with that. And I remember in my review at IGN, I was like, if anything, it's too easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I play a 3D game and I get smashed, you know, so I'm not I'm not saying that I'm because uh, I agree with you. I've totally atrophied my skills have atrophied as well. But difficulty is a really important thing for us to keep in mind simply through that twin breaker experience, which we learned something about our game that we didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And we learned other things, too, like that people really don't like RNG, which I get. But we had a, a trophy attached to RNG, which people didn't really like. But we had just assumed over time you would get it. And that that proved to be true. But maybe a lesson to be learned there. And so we with with Habroxia, it's funny because we took the the lesson so seriously from Twin Breaker that Habroxia 2 is really as easy or as hard as you want it to be. Um, That's why I'm surprised not so much with Boss Rush and like New Game Plus Plus. But when people say like, I'm really struggling getting through Habroxia 2, I'm like, I don't understand how that's possible because we made it so that you can make your ship so strong that mm-hmm. it's ridiculous how strong your ship can be and we did that and we did it in such a way where you can buy and then sell any of your power-ups to basically make a customized difficulty bar that way no one would really not no one but we would mitigate complaints about the game just being too hard for people mm-hmm. because that was always our reaction was okay twin breaker is a lot about it's a little bit about rng but a lot about movement and some people just can't play it and that's totally fine. But with this game, if you just grind out credits on the same stage, which sucks, I guess. But if you if you're really having trouble, just grind credits out and make your ship insane mm-hmm. and then just beat the game. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, yeah. um, so we might have even overcompensated in some way. But I think it was a really effective thing. I think modular difficulty, I think, is kind of a nice idea. And it was the first time I ever saw that was actually in Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Mm-hmm. when they were like here you can set the difficulty with your puzzles you can set the difficulty with your combat you can set the difficulty and i was like that's pretty cool so yeah. we we tried to do the same thing so like do you want your ship to have a ton of guns or none do you want your ship to have a lot of speed do you want your ship to you know kind of a similar mode and i think i think we helped i think that that helped a great deal but i also think with super perils of baking which was the game after that that we just let a lot of people play it and we were we were not so precious with it this time around. And we're going to continue to not be so precious moving forward. Gotcha. That's interesting. 
Uh, Game Positive wrote in when he found out we were talking, and he asks about the story of Hebroxia 2. He says, as with many a shmup, it's told in relatively short bursts, and in in many cases, smaller word counts can typically mean each individual word becomes more meaningful. As a writer, do you find that as a blessing or a curse to create characters or a story within those confines? Yeah, it's funny because I I mean, I'm incredibly verbose, as I think people know, and (laughs) that listen to me and and read my old work and all that. I just think that brevity, there's a place for brevity, but I don't think it's a podcast. I don't think it's the written word. I think it's, you know, in small talk or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I did take this. I did take seriously with Twin Breaker. I feel like the irony of Twin Breaker was lost on a lot of people. And that's the that's a failure of the writing. Mm -hmm. So I don't blame that on anyone. I wanted people to turn that game on and be like, why the fuck is there so much writing in a twin in in a brick breaker? This is I'm sorry. I'm cursing. You're fine. You're Uh, fine. why are there so many in this brick breaker? This is completely insane and funny that this is happening. Yeah. It's a cool story. It's really interesting. It's really grounded, but it's so bizarre. Instead, what people thought, oh, some people thought was like, well, is this guy for real? <laughs> you know, do we need a four minute intro to Twin Breaker? And I'm like, well, okay, I guess that's just me failing then. And so, like I said earlier, the second time through, it was like I wanted to be more judicious and economic with the word usage to fit more in what I expected people would want from um, a game like that. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it was funny to see that it wasn't enough. Like we did. We did the intro sequences and then we did that conversation with with um, Sabrina and her dad which is basically the training mission that I wrote that you can Mm -hmm. also skip. But other than that, we just kind of tried to leave it up to people's imaginations. And and the way I tried to write it and I'm I'm trying to look at video to see if I can find it is what I tried to do. Yeah, here it is. Is just to tell a story um, through little blurbs. So the first stage in Herboxia 2 is the circumstellar disc. And then all it says is a mining operation bordering the alien system. And that's all it says. And then at the end, you fight an enemy and it's the mining robot. Mm-hmm. And what I was trying to do was to say, like, OK, you're approaching this enemy system looking for your father. This is like their home planet. So they're their home system. So they have all of their ec- economy and social stuff and everything going on here. So at the very outskirts, you encounter a mining operation, like a mining op and fight a mining robot. And I'm like, that's the story. Right. And then you move on and on. And you get to the the halls of power and like closer to the home planet and all these sure. different things. And that's what I was trying to convey. But like I said, people were like, well, we liked the writing in twin breaker. And I'm like, are you kidding me? People were complaining about the writing in twin breaker and all no, we liked it. So, so then I went in and wrote all the journal entries, which I felt like weren't really necessary, but that a lot of people really liked mm-hmm. that gave you more of Sabrina's point of view, mm-hmm. who is not supposed to be so much of a, seen and heard from character as much as just the avatar for the player so Mm -hmm. the reality is is that this (laughs) it's kind of a blessing and a curse we live in the we've long now lived in the period of endless patching we can patch our game every day if we want to for free Mm -hmm. we can do whatever we want to the game Mm -hmm. and there's just no final decision nothing actually has to be final and it's the blessing because we were able to add something that people wanted but it was also a curse because i wasn't able to really execute on what i wanted it to be but again it was a failure in writing because people didn't see it for what it was again and i guess that's my fault do you think it's a failure in writing 
really? Or do you think it's just a massive audience and people are bound to misinterpret or, or interpret things differently? Yeah, I mean, it could be that. Maybe I'm being too hard on myself, but it's like I watch people play games and just hit the X button as they try to get through story or whatever. I was like, all right, move on. And I think I just get, we got a, a lot of people just play games like that. So when you're trying to put a soul into a game, basically, you have to kind of connect only with the players that understand that it's there at all, if that makes sense. And sure. so I think you're I think you're right. But I wish that we I wish that the very act like I loved this thing. I'm just watching a video of it <laughs> and uh, of when you would fight the bosses in the game and that and their names appear. But then it also says like what they are. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I was just I was hoping that that would just be enough to. Goad people into kind of using their imaginations, I guess, a little bit. You know, you're in the mine. Now you're fighting Sif, the guardian of the ore. So just use your imagination. I mean, but then I had to write a journal entry afterwards to talk about it or whatever. And it's like, okay, I can do that. But how much my brother always says it's very Spielbergian when people put a little bow on everything like that. And we yeah. it's like, don't no, don't you. My brother always says, like, no, don't you get it? No, I'm don't you really get it? I'm going to put it right in front of you and I'm going to reiterate it. We're going to have a character proxy for the audience in there. And all. it's like it's too heavy handed. but. Um, I'm still learning how to do it. So I'm proud of the, the writing. I'm, I don't want to get, get that wrong. I don't think the writing is bad. I think the writing is actually really good. I just think people have to see it through the lens of the intent. That makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Colin, Lilymo has a splash screen that pops up at the beginning of its games, thanking the player for spending money on that game. And I can think of only a few titles that have done this. I can think of like Witcher 3 did it in their box uh, back in the day when they had, when they first launched in physical form can you talk to me about that decision and that splash screen yeah that's that was my idea and i felt like it was just it's not something a lot of people even bring up i just feel like it's important to acknowledge the player and thank them for the buy-in especially because what's a good example like my sister is an art teacher but she has like this pretty thriving jewelry business on the side and she goes to like these fairs and all these things and sells online or whatever and mm -hmm. she gets to interface with her customer so when someone buys a pair of like custom earrings from her they're like thank you Allie, for these custom earrings and oh you're very welcome and you exchange the money and it's very physical and and maybe there's like a rapport there and we don't have that option really so mm -hmm. it's good to just tip your cap and be like thank you especially in an era and we're very open about this on sacred symbols and certainly feel like this at Lilimo is just games are too cheap and people don't understand the economics of video games at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I'm actually, it's actually stunning how ignorant even people that play lots of video games are about how expensive they are to make and how everyone has the right to do with what they will with their dollar. And I think that's totally fine. But as a player of games myself, I go out of my way to buy games. Mm -hmm. I try to buy them. If um, I try to buy them at full price, if I know I'm going to like them or I just like the developer, or I like the publisher and I just try to show that respect. And so in an era, again, when we've had a race to the bottom, eliminate value in games where people expect things to be free or on cheap subscription models or whatever the case might be. I think it's really vital to say, hey, thanks for spending 10 bucks because um, we know a lot of people aren't spending 10 bucks and we can't do this without your 10 bucks. So here's a tip of the cap. That leads me into, first of all, I, I love the idea behind that because uh, I'm a teacher myself and this is my side hustle. So I get it. <laughs> yeah, right uh, on. 
I, I'm curious. You guys published, and you have, you have a strong relationship with PlayStation just based on your own background, but you publish games now on PlayStation, <clears throat> excuse me, on Switch and on Xbox. Can you discuss the differences uh, that you see in getting a game to those various first-party platforms? Yeah, so I can give you a little bit of insight. Um, we have an associate producer, Ben Smith, who is also the associate producer of my company, Last Stand. And he does most of the interfacing with the different developers, or I'm sorry, the different mm-hmm. stakeholders, rather, um, because yeah. they all have their own ingestion systems and and all of the rest. Generally speaking, and I think a lot of people feel this way today, is that Xbox is the easiest company to work with and seems to value your specific games the most. And why we feel this way is because Microsoft has gone into much further um, much further extents than certainly Sony and Nintendo to not flood their storefront with garbage, just abject garbage. And just that alone, that discoverability on Xbox, it's just it's easier for a player to stumble upon our game there. And it also feels like Microsoft understands history better than its competitors in the sense that it doesn't seem like it wants to shut anything off or take anything away. Mm-hmm. While I think Sony has shown a propensity to say, like, we want to shut PS. I mean, remember, they were ready to shut PS3 and Vita down completely until people mm-hmm. freaked out. Yeah. You think they don't want to do that still? They're waiting and they're going to try again. And that sucks because it doesn't mean you don't have access to the games you bought and stuff. I feel like that's perpetual, but it just means that a person who released a game on PS3, like a like a random game, like Retrograde or something like that game can't even be bought anymore. There's no commerce there anymore. It's done. There's no chance for someone to they're like PewDiePie coming a PewDiePie type person coming along and streaming it one day in 20, you know, 20 years and people being like, what is this game? And they go back to the PlayStation Network archives and they find this old game. Well, that's not going to be possible for for PS3, probably. But Microsoft has a much better eye on that. They've always had a better eye on that. And with people putting games up and then leaving them there inertially to just do what they do, discoverability is everything. And so we think Microsoft is the is the best to work with right now. But we sell the most copies on PlayStation because there are the most players there for our particular types of games, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sacred Symbols audience is there, and that's a built-in marketing arm for us. And um, I also, there's, I, I, I'm of the mind too that I just think Xbox is training its players not to really buy games. So it's like, it's kind of, um, it's ironic in the sense that I'm using that word a lot today, but it's, it's, it's in the sense that it's the best place to be because our games feel safest there. But we wonder if the curation of that prod of that, um, that platform into subscription model only with a la carte options that no one's really taking advantage of, that that might actually be the death knell of our ability to, to do business there. So as usual, we are all over the map. I will say that the big, the most heavy handed is PlayStation. Um, we had to remove a reference in tw- in a Super Perils of Baking to Taiwan to wow. um, to get the game on. I wrote a uh, I wrote an enemy compendium, and in the enemy compendium, it's a game all about a baker, so it's all a cookbook, mm-hmm. and so it's like all the steps to build the different enemies, and there's like an evil toaster enemy, and so I talked about how it was made in a in a Chinese factory or something for. Um, a dollar a day and then i wrote just taiwan as a country and we would have failed certification if we didn't remove that sony would have failed you on certification right exactly 
but Microsoft and perhaps Nintendo. Microsoft doesn't carry. Nintendo didn't carry either. So actually, the game is patched on PlayStation and unpatched in that regard on Xbox and Switch right now and PC. That's interesting. We um okay. So you brought up several aspects that I'd like to ask you about within that, um, but I don't want to forget. Listeners, Ronald Reagan and Fenrir asked about your insight regarding subscription services, which you kind of briefly touched on. Could you? And one uh, one of them suggested that you had attempted to get some of the Lilymo projects onto Game Pass. Is that true, or is that just kind of an offhand? No, that's true. We tried to well, not all of them. We tried to get Super Perils of Baking, which is our newest game on Game Pass. We pitched it to them. Um, we're kind of bummed because. I mean, it's up to them to not have the game. They didn't want it, which is totally fine. <clears throat> but we had originally wanted to release the game on 420, which I think would have been funny because it's about eating and about baking. And- oh, on the date 420. I got it. Okay. <laughs> right. And we had like, to delay it. Be? What? <clears throat> no, no. We, and we had to delay it. I'm sorry, because uh, we had to wait to hear back from them. And uh, they ended up turning us down. They turned most most games down. I don't really blame them. I don't know that Super Perils of Baking would have been a great project for them to have promoted. It's not a tunic or something like that but it it's funny because i think it's our best game i think it's clearly our best game actually but it, it didn't sell very well so um we could have used that subscription money but i think what we were most curious about is we have this theory which a lot of developers do i, I don't care what anyone says it's just i talk to a lot of people it's just that the subscription models are, are really bad news and uh we wanted to understand better because everyone's so NDA'd. I hear, I talk to people and I know what people are, some people have been paid and all this, but you know, no one's allowed to share that theoretically. And we wanted to just have firsthand data on like, well, how does this work? Maybe I have this real, I have this real feeling that these subscription models are, are going to erode our ability and many developers ability to make money. Mm-hmm. The only way to get primary data on that is to enter one of our games it's, uh, itself so we tried to do that to just see because maybe we're totally wrong maybe maybe this works out great and maybe we're just we're not seeing the forest for the trees but unfortunately we were not able to get that data so we sold a la carte um, instead which is totally fine we were going to do that either way obviously um, but I think being on Game Pass we would have been precluded from releasing on PlayStation for a little while and all the rest so we just had to wait on all of that but <clears throat> we um we give you reasons why you're not selected i don't know i don't i don't know if they did they barry and ben were dealing a lot with that they might that's actually a good question um because we corresponded with them back and forth and we're like no you guys are in the queue and we're taking a look at the game so they are doing some sort of examination of it i don't know mm-hmm. but um they didn't you know we are a we're a small indie studio we, we the game i think super perils of baking looks great and i think it's really fun i think it's a great homage to super mario world but it is certainly not Ken a bridge of spirits or one of these ps plus games or one of these you know um what uh everybody or nobody saves the world or whatever like sure. a drink box game where it's like that's a very high tier expertly made indie game that this isn't for sure um, mm-hmm. we are a much different operation we would have liked to know more information but yeah we, we are skeptical of of subscription models i am extremely skeptical of, of subscription models and the race to the bottom in the games industry i just think the math doesn't really make any sense um and I hope I'm wrong, but I just feel like it, it means more A games, more churn of content and just a lot of just random nonsense to just justify people's subscriptions. And my whole take is, is I would rather pay $70 for a great game a few times a year. I don't need a subscription. I, I don't even I'm, I don't have PlayStation Plus the, the, those tiers either. Those new tiers, because I'm just like, I don't I literally have PlayStation Plus to use <clears throat> to use cloud saves <clears throat> mm-hmm. and uh, otherwise. I, so. Yeah, we're we're skeptical, but we would like our own primary data so we can have we can make a more informed decision. 
do you think that well i mean obviously if you're able to afford your games there's an element of privilege in in, in that like we're able to buy our games and some people aren't but the ability for a developer to make money is crucial to more games being made uh, and that, that that presents a unique conundrum. You need more players in your ecosystem, but you also have to intake money. And that means games will be designed differently, if I'm correct. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's interesting. You bring up something that I think it's hard to talk about, but it's it's true, which is gaming. You don't have a right to play video games, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't there's no God given right to have a, a access to the greatest video games in the world, like just like with anything else. Mm-hmm. there's a level of entry to that. That's just the way it is. It's the way it's always been. It's the same for a film. You don't just have a right to walk into a movie theater because a film is released. You don't mm-hmm. like you have to pay for a ticket. Um, yep. And so I think this mentality of people being like, well, gaming is too expensive and um, it's out of reach or whatever. And I'm like, but that's just totally divorced from reality. Gaming is cheaper than it's ever been. And more people play video games than ever. So there's a bit of irony that many people play those games on thousand dollar phones. That's you know? exactly right. Well, that is that, that's hysterical. And it's but what's also true, and I think this is something Sean Layden used to talk about, and it's something that is looked at as as widely true, which is there is there seems to perhaps be a finite amount of core console slash PC style gamers. That number might be something like 250 million. And that number just stays the same. And people come and people go and some people stay. And there's this argument that that number never really grows. And the idea of having these other models, whether it's free to play or subscription, cheaper access is just to court all of the other people. But my argument is, is that you can just make great games and people will flock to them. Um, And you see that with PlayStation this year. Uh, Gran Turismo 7, Horizon Forbidden West, MLB The Show, not counting the Xbox sales explicitly. Mm -hmm. And and. if certainly God of War are all going to be in the top 10 best selling games in the United States. Um, you know, those are those are not seen anywhere on subscription models. So I feel like it's a it's a it's whether you want to marinate your games within this 250 million static person group or you want to try to expand the field. And I still think there's a lot of blood to get from that 250 million stone. You know, like mm-hmm. I don't think you have to abandon the mores and norms of our industry to get more people in. I think if anything, we should be trying to inform players that games cost a lot of money to make and that people don't make a lot of money making games usually. Mm -hmm. And that we have to look at, we have to look at it as a, um, as a transaction, just like you would go to a store and buy your food or whatever. I mean, I, I just don't understand what people don't get about that. And the reality of, Lilymo, I mean, since we're talking about Lilymo, is I don't get paid. <laughs> you know, like I didn't know that. If if I got paid, we would not exist. Like I do all my stuff for Lilymo for free. I don't need the money because I, I run last stand and it's very successful and I'm very lucky. But Lilymo would not exist if we had to pay me. Mm-hmm. Just like we pay Barry or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we've made like a fundamental, almost unheard of sacrifice to even keep going. So imagine the imagine what's going on with the indie studios that don't have the biggest PlayStation podcast in the world as a built in marketing arm or right. like an ex IGN editor telling people to go play a game. Mm-hmm. It's it, I when I tell people that games sometimes sell scores or hundreds of copies on PlayStation Network, I mean it. And I don't think people really internalize that. And maybe you should. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, y- you said a few minutes ago 
kind of you're you're breaking down the differences between the first party platforms and being being that last stand does have such a playstation reach you're able to sell over there but you get better visuals are you're, you're seen and discovered more easily on the xbox side of things what's the difference between the two on that front like what is what is xbox doing that playstation's not uh you mentioned curation on some level i think yeah curation i think is is a big thing <clears throat> this is where some people get the idea and, and i totally get it where game pass acts as a curation device my whole thing is just that you shouldn't have to pay for that Mm-hmm. That should just be part and parcel of using a platform. You know, you should they shouldn't be pointing you towards the good games. The good you should just know where to find them. And there should be some sort of immersive way to to go through product and just have a better understanding of things, which is why I think that both the both Xbox and PlayStation have a lot to learn from Steam, if anyone, mm-hmm. about game pages and user reviews and and telemetry. But I think I was at IGN when PS3 was turning into PS4 and Vita was out there. Mm-hmm. And PlayStation had their real indie initiative thing going on. And this was born out of the reality that they were very, very late to the game in competing with Xbox Live Arcade, which was in the Xbox 360 era, really renowned for bringing 15 or $20 games to huge audiences. And games like Shadow Complex remain one of my very favorite games of all time. Mm-hmm. And Sony, on the other hand, was doing things like um, like Play Dead actually presented Limbo to them first. And they said, yeah, we'll take it, but we want to own the IP. And they're like, there's just no way we're doing that. So they went to Microsoft and it became really associated with Xbox Live Arcade instead. And Sony kept making these mistakes over and over again. And so eventually they were like, we need to court indies with no strings attached. So this is where the pub fund came from, which doesn't exist anymore. But this was the idea that Sony would actually lend people money. So this is how Drinkbox got started and a few others. They would basically fund Guacamelee and games like that and then the sales of the game would pay them back with a small rip. And then once you're free and clear, then you just split the money 70, 30 like usual. And this allowed a lot of indies to get a footing on PS3, late PS3 into Vita, PS4, especially using Unity Engine and all these other things. And then by the time PS4 rolled around, it just had a ton of indie support and it was known for that. And I think about games like um, Mercenary Kings and others early on where I'm like, these games were, were awesome. And Sony at some point, I think, started looking at the numbers and saying, we don't need to make hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit or several millions of dollars in profit. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're going to make these massive AAA games and we're just going to extract much more value out of them. And I totally understand that approach, but I think they have to understand that if you're going to let everyone sell on your platform, then you should at least acknowledge that they exist and give them the best possible experience um one that is consistent and i think if you talk to a lot of indie developers like i do and i know a lot of these people they would say that playstation was a great place to be eight years ago six years ago ten years ago and not so much now i mean not unless you're stray not unless you're kenna bridge of spirits not unless you're one of these games otherwise you have no prayer of Mm -hmm. being seen or being heard because there's going to be you know, jumping taco, seven iterations of that. And there's going to be all this crap where on PlayStation, I was pivotal. Um, PSN profiles is a uh, is a website for trophies. Mm-hmm. And I was pivotal in getting them to change their structure so that all of the shovelware that's uploaded to PlayStation Network basically every day would be sh- would be funneled out in an attempt to basically injure those companies financially. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that was my intent. And so it's just it's a mess. And I think that Microsoft has in turn 
captured or recaptured the spirit that they had during the Xbox 360 era. And dare I say, even in the late Xbox era, people might forget the original Xbox, like the Xbox arcade were discs and you would put them into your Xbox and buy games off of them. Mm-hmm. And they were always kind of ahead of the game and services. And so I know that that's why people look at accoutrements like Game Pass and they're like, well, this is so obvious. And I'm like, yeah, there might be something there. I mean, look at achievements and the Ethernet cable and Xbox Live and all these things. Certainly they they were ahead of the game there. But what's interesting about Microsoft is that they're they're recapturing that independent spirit while Sony seems to be clueless. And they think that promoting a game like Hades is promoting an indie game. And I'm like, but Hades isn't an indie game. I mean, it's an indie game. Literally, you know what else is literally an indie game? Hitman three. You know what else is literally an indie game? Cyberpunk. But I think we know what those games, what it means to be indie. Mm-hmm. And it's not 25 person teams and $10 million budgets and all the rest. And they've lost sight of that. So when I see these things where they put up the best indie games to keep an eye on this quarter or whatever on PlayStation blog, I'm like, these are not indie games. Indie games are made by studios like Lilimo. Mm-hmm. Go find the next game. Don't tell us about the games that we know about already. This is a, a fundamental failure. Sony has not recovered from, and it's why we don't feel very confident about the future of doing business there unless they take a real left turn because it just seems like it's going to be dominated by whatever they want it to be dominated by and while they have a fun while while it's a closed garden and they have the right to do that it just doesn't seem fair or equitable to flood the playstation network index and make it so that games can't be found and i i'm positive i'm not the only developer that feels like this i I know it I, i speak to people about this all the time it's people are really no, no one's ever going to abandon ship with PlayStation. That's not going to happen. But people know that they have lost touch for sure. Uh, is this a a lot of times on, on social media platforms, people will attribute this to Jim Ryan or Phil Spencer or Sean Layden or the, the top brass type guy. Is this that happening or is this more of just uh, kind of a spread out problem amongst sony or a benefit on xbox or a loss on xbox and different elements well some executive did make the decision that you know some executive in the c-suite or someone trusted by them at sony made the decision we're going to make the playstation network a free-for-all and i i actually crunch the numbers and don't even understand how they make money on this because these games have to have managers and they have to go through certification and get their trophies uploaded and all of this and they went from a PSN. I, I I tell newer gamers that that weren't on PSN during the PS3 era, especially. I'm like, open up your mind to the to the idea that there were weeks where games didn't even come out. None, nothing, nothing came out. And like I remember, even if you go further back, like on GameCube, there would be like five months with no games. Over the summer, people were gone. You didn't download stuff. And I feel like the less is more mentality was eroded mostly by Apple, which and. and Though I though I target Microsoft with their Game Pass stuff, it's really Apple that deserves the ire of everybody because they really dropped the bottom out um, with the App Store and the free to play stuff where it's just you can't even sell anything there anymore. It's just no one wants to pay anything. That's you training your audience to do a certain thing. And um, And that's your fear with Xbox. Right. Exactly. And so Xbox Xbox wants to train people not to buy games. They don't care. Um, But I don't understand how that really works. If you're going to have a subscription model and then you're also going to pay a la carte stuff, it's just that's, again, why I wanted the data, because we wanted to basically compare and we would only we would have to keep it to ourselves. But I wanted to compare the gross sum of money we would have been paid. Plus, if there was any residual, I don't know. And then how much we might have sold on the platform 
but also like opportunity cost, which I feel like is just not really taken into account with the subscription models. In other words, if you train an entire ecosystem to not buy games, what makes anyone want to sell games there when they're not on the service? It's um, and we just don't have the raw data. Microsoft always releases this just ham fisted data like these guys spend 11 percent more on games like whatever, dude, just use the numbers. Like, what are the numbers? And if you don't share the numbers, I suspect they're not worth sharing. <laughs> you know, Good point. Um, yeah. well, I mean, it's just obvious who used to in the Xbox 360 days, who used to say every single month how many consoles they sold? Uh, Microsoft. Yes. And, and then when did that, that stop Xbox in the Xbox One, One era? Right now, yeah. we have no idea anymore. I don't think I don't. I'm pretty sure Microsoft hasn't released official sales data in like eight years. It's been on actual time. console sales, like hard console sales. As far as I know, no one really even knows how many consoles Xbox One sold. You know? Yeah, I think it was like last we heard was a little over 40 and that was projections. not Right, exactly. Like there's no hard, hard and fast number. Like we know exactly how many PS4s were sold. Mm. And what's ironic is we also know exactly how many PS3s were sold. Um, but I'm only I'm not trying to pick up Microsoft. I'm just saying that they are very precious with that data. So we need to kind of delve in and kind of extrapolate ourselves. But if they had good things to say, they'd say them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like when we see PlayStation Plus's collapse in subscriptions, which I believe I don't I think the new PlayStation Plus is is not worth it. I told people not to get it. I, I, I was so mad when people were stacking it up sight unseen for years. I'm like, what are you doing? You're just giving Sony money for no reason. And lo and behold, it's not very remarkable. But I wouldn't be surprised if Game Pass also also is falling in subscription numbers, too. Really? I would be surprised if it has fallen. I would expect it's going up. Uh, let me rephrase that. I expect it to go up in 2023. That's yeah, no, I, mean. I do too. I expect that people like what it's what I do with like, I just canceled uh, Hulu because I'm like, well, I don't need this right now, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and even though I can afford it, it's like, well, it's just like, why would I give money away? And I yep. feel like people are doing that with Game Pass because I don't think they're not going to be back. And I think the number will be higher year over year. But I think there's a softness right now. There has to be. What are the games, you know? And um. So I, I I just again it's all conjecture until we get actual data, but I'm very interested in this data as a developer because it has everything to do with the economics of our studio and how we will exist moving forward. We have, um, we have to understand the lay of the land in order to move forward, and people should want the most even playing field possible for quality to shine through, and that should be the only barrier to entry. So. Microsoft seems to appreciate that better than others, which which is notable and something that we have noticed. So if, let's let's wrap this up on on that point, Colin. Garrett Bland wrote in. He wants to know what's next about or what's going on with your next project. He knows you're working on the story for it. You talked about Hybroxia. You briefly mentioned an RPG. Uh, what's next in terms of Lily Mo and the projects you're working on? And do you still see those being multi-platform? Yeah, we'll always do multi-platform games. We have no interest in doing console exclusives. Um, well, the only reason that Twin Breaker came to PlayStation 4 and Vita first was because it was a Sacred Symbols game. We had always intended on bringing it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. We just wanted to have a little celebration for the PlayStation audience at first. And uh, so that's what we did. But um, the future. Well, we have a lot of irons in the fire right now. The The reality is, is that there is we have somewhat of an urgency to create more revenue because it's just uh, Super Perils didn't sell very well. I don't know what the sales are at. It's probably like six or 7,000 copies, something like that, which is just not good for us. Um, what would I, be good? I'm asking out of ignorance. I truly really don't know. Yeah, I think that 
at the, I mean, I think 10,000 in the first month would have been ideal. Like our mm-hmm. twin breaker sold very strong. Herboxia two sold really strong. So yeah, just, I don't know, something like that. But it, what was disappointing about it was it's really, <laughs> I know people would expect me to say, say this, but it's really good. And, um, I thought it would have more of an appeal. I, I wrote a, I wrote a story for it. That's very, it's like ri- written in, in verse and it's for children basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just was trying, we were trying to do something different. It didn't really work out, but, um, it was cool because it was a remake of our original game that I had nothing to do with. So, um, I got to kind of put my, my mitts onto that, but yeah, we have a couple, let me even just open up our discord. We have a different channel for inter- our internal discord for every game that we could potentially be doing. So let's see. I won't read them all obviously, but, um, yeah, so we call the prequel version of Herboxia Herboxia Zero. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's going to what's going to happen with that, but that seems likely to come out in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Herboxia 3, I think, is further off. We have a game that we've codenamed. And we've talked about this a lot called Forest Guardian. That's pretty far along. And j- the problem is, is that the artist we're working on with it has a real job. And so it's worked on pretty slowly. Um, but that game will probably be ready at some point. And then the other two games that we're working on right now, we have the role playing game going. That's deep in development. Um, that's I wrote. I wrote that. I basically wrote the synopsis and the characters, and then we had a writer, John Opeck, come and and flesh it out for us. And uh, I'm really, really excited about it. It's a 16 bit style Japanese style role playing game, and uh, made very much in the vein of Final Fantasy VI. Mm-hmm. And it's the topic the the people are going to like it. It's a very, the story is very Colin and uh, people will see when the time comes. I don't want to ruin it. And then one other thing is that we're, we're actually working on a pitch for a publisher. Um, we are potentially working on a, an IP for a smaller publisher, but we are in the pitch stage with that. So, and what that's coming mean? more out I mean, of, you would, you I'm sorry, publish. I don't know what that means. Does that mean you would publish or you are going to a publisher? No, we're going to a publisher. So, I see. We um, we are we self-publish our games. The games we we actually didn't self-publish all of the ports of some of our older games, and we actually went back and bought all of those ports. So we own Mm -hmm. everything we've made, and um, so the way we look at it with um, with this particular pitch is that we need to manufacture some money. We might as well try to approach a publisher, which we did, and they were interested in talking to us and see if we can work on their behalf to maybe raise some revenue while we get our own um our own game spinning up again because again it's just money's at a premium we obviously in, we pay all of our freelancers and our collaborators fairly and we want to just make sure everything's kind of buttoned up there so the the long-term game for us is the role-playing game but we kind of have to get there i i think the the role-playing game is going to be really big like I, I have a good feeling about it from in the indie space. I don't think it's going to be like, you know, a hundred thousand seller or anything, but I think it's going to do a nice, I think it's going to draw people's attention. The subject matter is dope, I think. And we're really excited about that as well. So I would expect to see, I, I would expect the next game is maybe something like the Herboxia prequel would be, what would be next for us. Mm-hmm. And that would be 2023. Yeah. 2023. And then I would expect the role-playing game, maybe, late 2023 early 2024 and yeah we'll go from there we'll see what happens well if i can point any any of our listeners uh today but from this interview or otherwise check out hybroxia's one and two i absolutely love them super perils of baking is on my hard drive i'm excited to check that one out colin uh i really appreciate you taking the time today man this is really really great 
cool man I, yeah thank you for having me thank you for the invite glad to be here hope barry thinks i did a good job too and um yeah, we appreciate the sport. Anyone that's interested in indie development and, and you want to check out our games, we do a, we do really appreciate it. Every sale helps and um, telling friends and Let's Plays and all the rest. I just, it's hard to get noticed. I mean, the beauty of the internet is that anyone can do anything. And that was the reason how I became big in the space to begin with. And I'm thankful for that. But it's a grind, dude. It, a lot of it is just luck and timing. It's all it is. I mean, you can put out a good product, but you got to have good luck. You got to have good timing and and nothing else will do. So it's really about, repetition and and learning more as we go and and we hope we hope to continue to you know i want that i don't i mean i would like more money i always like more money that's great but i don't need it you know last stand is very successful and so just having a passion project where we can try to find that next core of a great product is exciting that we have that that room to stretch and so i'm, I'm grateful for it well, Colin Moriarty, I would invite you to plug any of the socials you'd like, Last Stand, Lily Mo, whatever you would have uh, people go to check out your work, man. Yeah, just you can just Google Lily Mo Games and it will bring you to our website. I think it's lilymogames.com. And um, I don't really use social media very much anymore, but you can find all of my coverage stuff on Last Stand on Patreon. And you don't have to be a patron. It, it, uh, it's just the best index of all of our stuff. So patreon.com slash Media. Thank you.